I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Jonathan Marshall, author of the excellent book, Dark Quadrant, Organized Crime, Big Business, and the Corruption of American Democracy, returns to discuss his recent article in Lobster Magazine entitled The Watergate Break-Ins and the Howard Hughes Connection. Decades after the events transpired, the question still remains and is debated. Why did the Nixon plumbers break into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee? Marshall's answer involves issues related to blackmail and money in politics, as well as the eccentric and notoriously reclusive 20th century business tycoon Howard Hughes. We'll also be discussing a recent scholarly piece that Jonathan wrote for the Journal of Cold War Studies entitled U.S. Cold War Policy and the Italian Far Right. The Nixon Administration, Republican Party Operatives, and the Borghese Coup of 1970. More on that in the, I would say, last 10 to 15 minutes of the show. Most of the conversation will be centered around Watergate and the secrets of Watergate, the secret history of Watergate. All that and much more discussed on this edition of the show. Uh, We also give a bit of a refresher on the thesis of Dark Quadrant, Jonathan's book, and why an issue like Watergate 
still resonates, still matters today, and why maybe we should be looking at it more. So, with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Jonathan Marshall, author of Dark Quadrant. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I always enjoy speaking to, Jonathan Marshall, author of Dark Quadrant, a book that we were very happy to speak with you about, uh, I believe, last year. And you have an article out now called The Watergate Break-Ins and the Howard Hughes Connection. And my understanding is that was originally supposed to be in Dark Quadrant, uh, a sort of whole section on Watergate. Uh, it's now readable at Lobster Magazine, this Watergate article, though. Uh, before we get into that, maybe you can give my listeners a refresher on uh, Dark Quadrant, and uh, then we can get into Watergate. Sure. Well, I've been researching the area that uh, has gone by the name parapolitics, that uh, Peter Dale Scott, a longtime researcher, coined that term. It's kind of the the area of politics that uh, is suppressed from public discussion. And in practice, it often relates to the intersection of organized crime, intelligence, things that are today sometimes called deep state, which is not a term I love, but uh, uh, political extremism, terrorism, and so forth. The reason they've often been resisted uh, and avoided public discussion is they really call into question the kind of standard textbook model of American democracy. I think in the last uh, 15 years or so, these these subject areas have burst forward uh, in full public view or greater public view. And they have had precisely the effect that concerned many people, which is that they have eroded confidence in American democracy and the nature of our institutions which has indeed had some bad effects, I think, on our <clears throat> our political system. But I think at the end, we're, we're better off with the truth and dealing with it, uh, trying to reform or correct mistakes rather than pretend that they don't happen. So anyway, I've been researching this area for years. Uh, I've had many publications and prior books, but Dark Quadrant, my last book, was a kind of culmination of my interest in especially the intersection of organized crime and national U.S. politics, which was an area completely sort of under-researched. There's been, of course, millions of books written about organized crime families and, and so on, mafia families, uh, local and even state political corruption. But looking at the national level has really been something that was... Uh, uh, sort of not touched. And I, with this book, decided to use the techniques of professional historians uh, to make it more credible and grounded in fact. So I looked at five records from five presidential libraries, thousands and thousands of records from the National Archives, declassified FBI and CIA documents, dozens and dozens of long forgotten congressional hearings and so on and so forth, and mapped the connection of organized crime from the Truman era right after World War II up through Donald Trump. Though the bulk of the book is from Truman to uh, President Nixon and showing that there was a, a pattern of corruption here uh, 
that often then involved important state institutions like the FBI and like the CIA. One of the culminating chapters dealt with, uh, the, touched on the origins of the Watergate scandal as a sort of outgrowth of political blackmail that grew out of CIA operations against Fidel Castro starting in 1959, when the CIA, which was under great pressure to get rid of this new insurgent uh, Marxist leader, enlisted the US mafia or certain members of the US mafia to assassinate him. This was an absolutely top secret operation, one of the most secretive in CIA's history. And it ran into several problems. One is that it was completely contrary to the US Attorney General's war on organized crime. That was Bobby Kennedy's war on organized crime. And then an even bigger problem was that uh, after the assassination of President Kennedy in 1963, there was a very real possibility, which I don't endorse, but it was a possibility the CIA could not rule out, that either some of its own rogue agents had helped conduct the assassination or agents of Fidel Castro retaliating for the CIA's assassination programs had struck back against President Kennedy. You cut out there Either for a second. You said agents of Castro? Could have retaliated against President Kennedy and specifically against the CIA's effort to assassinate Castro, which they <clears throat> blamed on Kennedy, not knowing the internal politics of US administration, they would have assumed that everything the CIA was doing was authorized by President Kennedy. Uh, either of those two possibilities, that its own agents did it or that Castro's agents did it in, in response to the CIA would have been absolutely fatal to the CIA's future existence. So they went into deep cover mode, and I discuss the ways in which some of the gangsters involved in the CIA assassination program used their intimate knowledge of this top secret and extremely embarrassing program to blackmail the CIA and others in the US government uh, about uh, this in order to protect themselves from uh, law enforcement and efforts in one case to have them deported as an undesirable alien. Well, all of this uh, blackmail campaign involved insider lawyers and insider uh, journalists whose uh, reports became of great interest to the White House and of great concern to the White House for reasons that are very complicated and we'll probably get into later. But essentially, uh, some of President Nixon's intrigues in 1972 and the operations of his secret uh, investigative squad, which was called the Plumbers Squad, that was implicated in Watergate, uh, had very much to do, was an outgrowth of all of these blackmail campaigns. And the key, the key thing that brought President Nixon down and forced his resignation was his effort in 1973 or actually 1972, excuse me, to squelch the FBI's investigation of the Watergate break-in 
uh, which was, by the way, conducted by several veterans of the CIA's Bay of Pigs operation against Castro in 1961. Nixon essentially, through his minions, warned the CIA that if the FBI's investigation of Watergate went forward, implicating some of these CIA veterans, it would break loose secrets that the CIA didn't want to have disclosed. In particular, he referenced the Bay of Pigs thing. And that was a code word, many people believe, for the CIA's assassination plots against Castro. And what's often forgotten and not even mentioned in some histories of Watergate is the CIA actually did take that Nixon's threat seriously and got the FBI to shut down its investigation of Watergate or major portions of its investigation for more than two weeks before the CIA thought better of it and backed off. Uh, but Nixon's threat scared the CIA enough that it did intervene. And it was that obstruction of justice, not the original break-in itself, that led uh, to Nixon's impeachment and subsequent resignation in August of 1973. So this long sorted history of blackmail had everything to do with Nixon's resignation. And uh, my exploration of this was part of really what became a three-part series of articles. Uh, another one I did for Lobster on the history of sexual scandals and sexual blackmail in American history. So Watergate was a not sexual blackmail, a different kind of blackmail, but sexual blackmail, uh, we know that sex scandals, you know, almost brought down Bill Clinton, for example. They were extremely important to the Kennedy administration because FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover's knowledge of Jack Kennedy's sexual escapades gave him invincible power to uh, prevent his firing as a very difficult, prickly kind of person who Kennedy desperately wanted to get rid of Hoover, but Hoover knew far too much, uh, had far too much in his files about Kennedy's sexual escapades going back to World War II when he was had a dalliance with a suspected German agent. So uh, the third part of it, was the piece that uh, I published recently, also on Watergate. And this argued, uh, instead of looking at why Nixon was impeached, which as I mentioned, had to do with his attempt to enlist the CIA through blackmail in a cover-up attempt. I asked the question, why did the break-in take place in the first place? And I think, most people would be surprised if you know they have a sketchy knowledge of Watergate, but uh, there's there's a lot of speculation about well, why. That's the one question that keeps coming up. Why why Watergate? Why do the break in? I mean, even when Nixon first heard about it, you write about this in the article. Uh, Nixon was like, it, it almost sounds like a setup. It's so ridiculous, you know. That's right. Well, first of all, I think at this point, sadly, uh, more than fifty years after the the fact. Many people have kind of dimly heard of Watergate, so it's important to remind people that this was uh, at its time, and you know, arguably even since, just about the biggest 
political scandal in U.S. history. It did lead, not even President Trump resigned <laughs> despite all of his uh, sins, but Nixon was forced to resign. It was, of course, of a, di a different era, but uh, uh, so it was a big deal. Most people, I think, would therefore be surprised to learn that we actually don't know the reasons why uh, this break-in uh, that we call, you know, at the Watergate headquarters. Watergate was a an apartment complex where the Democratic National Committee housed its headquarters. Uh, I think most people would be kind of stunned to learn that after, you know, thousands or millions of person years of investigation, we still don't know why that burglary. It was that which was termed a third-rate burglary at the time by Nixon's press secretary and then ballooned into this huge scandal, why it happened. And uh, as you just pointed out, I begin my article by noting that the best investigations never determined with absolute certainty, and certainly not with any official imprimatur, why it happened. So there are several dozen theories out there. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, what I try to do is write about the importance, again, of blackmail, uh, that Nixon was desperately afraid that one of his enemies on the Democratic side, the Democratic national chairman, a man named Larry O'Brien, had blackmail information against him, Nixon. Nixon or his team rather, because Nixon probably didn't even know about the burglary, but Nixon's team was hoping through the burglary to get blackmail information against Larry O'Brien to neutralize him. <laughs> so you had complete, competing blackmail going on here. And uh, it's kind of mind boggling the implications for the way in which uh, American politics Again, don't follow, if anyone still believes it, don't follow the textbook rules that some of us learned in, in civics classes about you know, how it's all supposed to work. So then what would this blackmail have been about? And I think this will help us get into the figure of Howard Hughes. So I think most people know Howard Hughes today, if they know him at all, is that you know eccentric recluse uh, you know, the, the, that was into aviation. Uh, he ran RKO, one of the big five studios uh, back in the golden age of Hollywood, and then became increasingly reclusive in his later life. But I don't often hear Howard Hughes talk about in terms of politics, except maybe uh, for his being very strident in saying, you know, I'm going to make these movies at RKO. They have to be anti-communist. He was big on the anti-communism of the Cold War era, but uh, go on with uh, how the Howard Hughes connection sort of fits into Watergate. Sure. Well, I fear that today most people probably have barely even heard of Howard Hughes, but uh, a few decades ago when he was still a more famous figure, he was considered one of America's leading industrialists, one of America's richest men. Uh, and you're right, he was not only rich, but some you know rich people, a lot of billionaires you, today you've barely heard of. He was exceptionally colorful because he did own a movie studio. He dated some of the most famous uh, female movie stars ever. 
He was famous aviator. There was a movie done with Leonard DiCaprio called The Aviator about uh, parts of his life. Um, he made an absolute fortune off of a patent for a specialized uh, drill bit used by the oil industry, which turned him into a centimillionaire, which by today's standards would make him a billionaire. He then made billions further through contracts with the U.S. government, with the Air Force, Hughes Aircraft, uh, and especially with the CIA, which he had a very close relationship for decades, going back to probably 1948. <laughs> um, he also owned uh, the huge airline TWA for those who are old enough to re remember flying on it. So that was uh, made him a you know very prominent figure. Always embroiled in lawsuits, uh, just endless litigation. He finally sold TWA and reinvested many of his profits in a whole slew of uh, Nevada, Las Vegas casinos which was kind of a mind-boggling shift of priorities from tool bits and airlines uh, and uh, aircraft to casinos. Uh, and he was rather liked by some officials because the uh, Las Vegas gambling industry was heavily controlled by organized crime at the time. And it was thought that Hughes would come in and basically turn it into a... Uh, family-friendly, legal, legit enterprise by buying out all of these hoodlums. So it was tolerated. Later, he ran into some antitrust problems. But all through his career, he was, uh, without being very overtly so, he was quietly extremely political because he relied on huge political contributions and backroom connections to ensure favorable dealings with the IRS, which gave him huge tax exemptions, with the Justice Department that uh, avoided antitrust prosecutions over and over and over again, and with many, many other government agencies. And biographers who've studied the record think he made billions of dollars off of these sweetheart deals. Um, and these go back to World War II when he and one of his lobbyists basically put huge amounts of money and prostitutes and liquor at the disposal of well-placed Americans, including one of Franklin D. Roosevelt's sons, uh, to uh, ensure favorable uh, defense contracts. So uh, he found that this formula worked well. And one of his early targets was uh, Richard Nixon who he, I think, contributed to as early as 1946 when Nixon ran his first congressional campaign. But uh, in 1956, when Nixon was vice president running for a second term with President Eisenhower, uh, Hughes saw an opportunity to get very cozy with the second highest uh, officer in the land. And he gave a $205,000 essentially unsecured loan to Nixon's brother, Donald. And uh, this was just a sheer political payoff. And what's really important to the Watergate story, even though Watergate happened so many years later, 
is that in 1960, when Vice President Nixon was running for election as president against Jack Kennedy, Kennedy's campaign manager, this fellow named Larry O'Brien, who I briefly mentioned, caught wind of the Hughes loan to Donald Nixon. And uh, O'Brien and a bunch of uh, aides uh, traced all of these payoffs and handed the evidence over to a couple of investigative reporters who had a nationally syndicated column, Drew Pearson and Jack Anderson, very, very famous uh, journalists for their time, now somewhat forgotten. Their expose of the Hughes loan in 1960 helped sink Nixon's uh, election chances. And Nixon always blamed his very, very close defeat in part to the revelations about that loan. So ever since he hated Larry O'Brien, he hated Jack Anderson and Drew Pearson, uh, who were muckraking reporters. And all of these names <laughs> resurfaced in 1972 to haunt him again, which is just, it's kind of amazing how long lasting these connections can be. Um, but, and this story gets tantalizingly complicated. So I'll have to both ask uh, your audience to excuse me a little bit and, and urge them to read the article where they can kind of weave their way through all of these connections. But uh, when Howard Hughes bought all of these casinos and moved into Las Vegas, he hired as his top man to run his entire uh, Las Vegas empire, an ex-FBI officer who had been working for the CIA for years named Robert Mayhew. And Mayhew is very important. I, I went on earlier at some length about the CIA plots to kill Castro and how important they were in the secret blackmail that extended a, over a decade uh, at the very highest levels of government. Well, it turns out that Robert Mayhew was the intermediary the CIA chose to recruit the gangsters to assassinate Castro. So that's kind of mind-boggling right there. Here's this guy. He's uh, ex-FBI, working as a private investigator, working now for Howard Hughes, and bingo, the CIA uh, recruit him to... Uh, hire gangsters to kill Castro, which is, again, just about the most sensitive secret in the entire US government at the time and for many years. Well, first of all, um, one of the first people to hear about this is Howard Hughes himself. Now, this, this is not good security practice to allow a highly embarrassing secret to be known by uh, outsiders. But the CIA had been doing billions of dollars worth of business and Howard Hughes was a very tough man to say no to because he kept asking Mayhew, how come you keep leaving me to go on these mysterious you know, flights to Miami and other places? I want you back here. And, and Mayhew had to tell Hughes what he was doing for the CIA. Yes, Mike? I was just going to interrupt for a second. I love that you quote uh, Hughes speaking to Mayhew. And you know, Hughes says, you just remember that I... Howard Hughes can buy any man in the world, or I can destroy him. This is not a guy to be messed with lightly. That's right. 
certainly a megalomaniac, but who, frankly, had the power to do much of what he he said. Um, so, uh, so now Howard Hughes knows about this secret operation. Well, soon uh, Mayhew's lawyer uh, knows as well. Man in private practice, very very obscure, probably the most powerful and influential lawyer I know of at this time. Who there's never been a biography of him. Uh, a man named Edward P. Morgan, who is himself a former. FBI agent, which is where he got to know Mayhew, uh, began working on a contract basis with the CIA around 1950-51, but was in private practice, and uh, began taking on a number of very interesting clients. Uh, he took on, first of all, a very, very powerful uh, mobster based in Southern California and Las Vegas named John Roselli, who had connections with the very Las Vegas casinos that Hughes bought up. Well, John Roselli also happened to be a good friend of Mayhew and was the first mobster Mayhew went to when he wanted to recruit assassins uh, against Castro. So this lawyer, Morgan, is now representing one of the CIA's uh, paid mobsters, actually wasn't paid, but uh, allied mobsters. Uh, and they worked as well with the head of the Chicago mafia, a man named Sam Giancana. Well, another client of Edward P. Morgan was this muckraking reporter, Jack Anderson. Well, whoa, this is the guy who <laughs> had spilled the beans on the, the uh, Howard Hughes payoffs to Nixon. Uh, but it gets worse. Anderson now becomes the chosen vehicle when John Roselli, the mobster, wants to blackmail the U.S. government uh, to get law enforcement off his back. He starts leaking information about the CIA plots against Castro through Jack Anderson, because Jack Anderson is Edward P. Morgan's client. So Morgan is this marionette who's got mobster on one side, he's got Howard Hughes, who he's also now uh, representing, believe it or not, and he's got Jack Anderson. Uh, to make matters worse, Morgan in 1973 becomes uh, chief counsel to the Democratic National Committee, which was Larry O'Brien's shop. So. You have, I'm sorry to say, but, you know, because I tend to resist these, you know, global conspiracy theories, but you have a pretty tight-knit group of people here who Nixon, when he looked back on all of this, uh, could, could, with some just, justifiability, feel like there was a cabal arrayed against him. Uh, and indeed, maybe I can uh, take a look at my own writings here. Um, let me find this, because Nixon's own people were warning about exactly that. Okay, let me mention one other key fact, and then I'll, I'll go back to these quotes. So the most important fact uh, for this latest article is that Howard Hughes, having 
already had longstanding political connections to Nixon and having blown, you know, and Nixon's election in 1960, having been blown out of the water by revelation of their close connection. Basically, a repeat of all of this happened in 1969 and 70, when Hughes decided and told his, his operator, Mayhew, basically, that he wanted to own the U.S. government. And he said he could buy the Nixon administration. He set out to do it. And he ordered Mayhew to make cash payoffs to Nixon. So Mayhew basically got an, one of his operatives, an old friend of Nixon, to give two $50,000 cash payments uh, to Nixon's friend and banker, a Cuban exile based in Florida named B.B. Rebozo, who was Nixon's best friend going back to 1950. Um, prior to these payoffs, Hughes's attorney, working with Mayhew, insisted that this attorney was uh, <clears throat> Edward P. Morgan, who I mentioned. He said that he wanted to do the payoffs to Rebozo in person because he said, otherwise, how will we know that Rebozo will ensure that Nixon really knows the money came from us? We want to make sure this money doesn't just get kind of siphoned off. We want to get full credit for this money so that Hughes can, can gain the political clout. Well, Rebozo blew up and he said, hell no. There is no way in the world I am going to take money from this man, Edward Morgan, who is Jack Anderson's personal attorney. <laughs> he said, we have already been burned by Jack Anderson over a Howard Hughes connection once. So that basically already all of these guys know that there are kind of deep blackmail possibilities here. So in the end, Mayhew found another intermediary to give this money to Rebozo, who stuffed it in a bank deposit box for Nixon. Okay, so now what happens is, <clears throat> uh, getting very convoluted, to build up uh, bipartisan political support for Hughes, Mayhew, who again is running his whole Nevada empire, hires Larry O'Brien, this whiz of a Democratic campaign manager who ran Jack Kennedy's campaign in 1960 and ran a nearly victorious campaign for Hubert Humphrey in 1968, Mayhew hired O'Brien to run Hughes's Washington, D.C. office, basically his lobbying operation. So, so you have the Hughes empire is sort of uh, trying to cozy up with both, you know, both Democratic officials and the Nixon people. They're an equal opportunity uh, employer of politicians, which is how all successful businesses operate. So they've got one of the top names in the Democratic Party uh, on their payroll, and they have $100,000 in cash payoffs to the president of the United States. So that's uh, pretty good political capital. Now, all of this starts falling apart when, uh, for reasons that I won't go into now, but basically 
Hughes loses faith in his top man, Robert Mayhew, and fires him in November 1970. Mayhew is now a free agent, very angry, and having been, in his view, falsely accused of improprieties, losing this cushy job. He, uh, he may be uh, wanting revenge at this point. He may indeed will want revenge. And unfortunately, he knows a lot. He knows about $100,000 in illegal cash payoffs, for one thing. For another thing, he knows all the dirty secrets about the CIA's operations against Castro, which he's already been leaking to Jack Anderson. He's a close friend of John Roselli, the mobster. So uh, he also walks off with thousands of pages of top secret handwritten memos from Hughes, which detail many embarrassing and even illegal operations by Hughes, including many of his political directives. So this is not a man to uh, toy with. So Nixon has been hating Larry O'Brien, as I mentioned, ever since 1960, when O'Brien sank his presidential chances. Nixon is worried that O'Brien in 1972, who has been, you know, is getting back in charge of the Democratic Party, could be another obstacle. And Nixon also, as we may recall, was someone who had longstanding uh, grievances against his enemies and wanted to punish them. He had what was called the enemies list. And O'Brien was at the top of his list. You know, always pushing for IRS audits. Uh, he sent investigators to dig up dirt on O'Brien. And he wanted to know if there was any dirt on O'Brien's relationship with Howard Hughes, which would be a kind of nice payback for the dirt that O'Brien originally dug up years ago about Nixon and Hughes. Well, uh, Nixon's people, let me just see if I can find this here. Um, Oops. Nixon's people start to warn him that uh, in, the, in the words of one investigator, he said, there is a serious risk here for a counter scandal if we move precipitously. Warning further that forced embarrassment of Larry O'Brien in the matter of Howard Hughes might well shake loose Republican skeletons from the closet, including uh, for example, these Hughes, Hughes cash payments. Later, uh, Dean's invest, uh, or this White House investigator reported uh, when Mayhew was fired, he said the whole situation out there in Nevada was getting very sticky and very ugly. <laughs> and um, he, he learned that the White House learned that the Hughes empire was, quote, embroiled in an internal war with $2 billion at stake, private eyes swarming, nerve-jangling power plays going on, and mafia figures lurking in the wings. This is the actual, uh, this is actually what one of the White House memos had to say. And uh, they, uh, the White House then started a top-secret file about the whole Hughes connection to Nixon. 
and what to do about it. And uh, started tasking investigators to look deeply into the risks to the White House of Mayhew or someone else releasing information about the illegal cash payments that Hughes had made to Nixon. This could blow Nixon out of the water in 1972, just as the previous relationship had blown Nixon out of the water in 1970. And uh, the Nixon team actually contemplated an illegal burglary of a uh, journal of a publisher's safe in Las Vegas, where they thought that some of these incriminating memos were being kept. And they began focusing uh, more and more attention on the need to investigate what Larry O'Brien might know about uh, the new Howard Hughes connection and what incriminating information they might get against Larry O'Brien that could be used to blackmail him into silence. And that was uh, in my ar argument here, and I cite lots of uh, evidence for this. The key target of the Watergate break-in was Larry O'Brien's office. This has been widely discounted by people who've said, why in the world would the Nixon administration want to uh, check out the head of the Democratic National Committee, if they were just looking for political intelligence, they would have gone after the uh, campaign headquarters of Nixon's chief rival, <laughs> Senator uh, McGovern. The head of the Democratic National Committee is kind of a titular position. It's not that important to the day-to-day -day campaign. What all of these people have missed is Nixon wasn't looking for campaign intelligence he was looking specifically for intelligence about Larry O'Brien and the Hughes connection. That makes all of this make sense. Why O'Brien of all people was the target of this break-in. And there was ample evidence that O'Brien really was not the only target, but the primary target of the uh, actually several burglaries of the Democratic National Committee. And uh, it was, of course, the uh, cover-up of that break-in that led to Nixon's resignation. But the break-in itself had everything to do with this long-standing blackmail uh, that had to do with the Hughes empire, political payoffs, uh, and uh, internecine warfare between ex-members of the Hughes operation and the Nixon camp. And let me just mention here, I've, I've talked about the way in which Hughes's ex-operative, <clears throat> Robert Mayhew, angered by his firing, became a uh, major threat by leaking memos that would expose and explode the Nixon-Hughes relationship. I mentioned the fact that the White House had to be fearful that Mayhew's uh, lawyer, <clears throat> Edward P. Morgan, was also Jack Anderson's lawyer, so that there was a direct conduit for these memos to get to the major national media, because Jack Anderson was one of the most widely syndicated investigative columnists in the US media. Uh, they had a further problem which was that Mayhew's 
Long first major employer was a Washington lawyer named Edward Bennett Williams, who had also been a mafia lawyer. But among other things, in 1972, he was attorney, who's the chief counsel to the Democratic National Committee, and get this, also chief counsel to the Washington Post. (laughs) You have all of Nixon's enemies now, you know, being represented by these shadowy lawyers and deep insiders who have explosive information. As soon as the Watergate break-in happened, uh, the lawyer, Edward Bennett Williams, called a top editor at the Washington Post and told them they better get on this and make a big deal and make a major investigation into this burglary, which, you know, most people thought was a really minor affair. So he convinced the Washington Post to really put its investigative guns on this case. Edward Bennett Williams, then as counsel to the Democratic National Committee, started uh, a lawsuit against the Republicans and the Nixon campaign, using that lawsuit to depose uh, Nixon campaign officials and keep the investigation alive during a period when most people were poo-pooing it. So he was able to, again, keep it alive, feed information to the Washington Post until the bigger scandal broke. Uh, So it was incredibly important. Then I mentioned he handed over the the Democratic National Committee account to (laughs) this other lawyer, uh, Edward P. Morgan, uh, who also represented Mayhew. So uh, to talk about you know, I mentioned I'm not a big fan of the term deep state, but boy, this stuff uh, would give anyone ammunition for thinking that the deep state is real. <laughs> because, uh, you know, Nixon brought himself down. Let's, let's not pretend otherwise. It was not. Yeah, you're, you're not trying to make the argument. I know people like Liddy and whatnot are, have tried to, when, when, when G. Gordon Liddy was alive, one of the plumbers, for people that don't know, have tried to sort of rehabilitate uh, Nixon and, you know, sort of uh, make themselves look like the good guys. It was a deep state plot against Nixon. But we're, we're not really trying. I mean, just to be clear, we're not trying here to uh, make Nixon look like he wasn't a crook. He was. but Right. People, unfortunately, and this is a kind of a good thing to remember, think in these binary terms of, you know, one side is good, one side is bad. So if if Nixon had some enemy, less unsavory enemies, then maybe Nixon wasn't so bad. It doesn't follow. Nixon had some very unsavory uh, and calculating enemies, but he was also very unsavory and calculating himself. But what I try to show here is that the whole unfolding of this development and unfolding of this scandal had nothing to do with, you know, white hats versus black hats, but a lot of competing unsavory interests operating beneath the radar of uh, public discussion, most media discussion, that you know, calculated media leaks were taking place, but not to serve the public, rather to serve the interests of powerful insiders who manipulated in- information and, and doled it out in small bits to try to uh, gain political advantage, to extort uh, uh, gains and so forth. It's a, a very, very uh, unsavory story when you look at all the the players and what they were up to. Yeah, acts of political subterfuge. Right. 
Now, let me just mention one thing further, which I don't go into in these articles, but um, uh, I mentioned that <clears throat> Nixon in part was able to blackmail the CIA briefly into shutting down the FBI's investigation of Watergate because many of the operatives in in the among the Watergate burglars were these CIA veterans. Uh, one of the E. Howard Hunt, Frank Sturgis, right? Right. Eugenio Martinez. E. Howard Hunt was one of the two people who led the operation. And he was a very senior CIA officer who had been involved with the uh, 1954 CIA coup in Guatemala. And he was involved uh, intimately in the abortive Bay of Pigs invasion against Castro in 1961. He had a long, long history with the CIA. And it was that involvement with Castro that allowed uh, Nixon to kind of hint that these dark secrets about the CIA attempts to assassinate Castro could come out. Uh, however, there's there's a deeper story here, which is why Nixon's crew recruited people like E. Howard Hunt in the first place. I mentioned briefly they, they went by the moniker of the plumber squad. And that's because the job of a plumber is to fix leaks. And these were metaphorical leaks of top secret information uh, from the White House that was driving Nixon crazy. In 1969, for example, information leaked to the New York Times that Nixon was secretly bombing Cambodia and Laos, which were two neutral countries. Uh, and that was a huge, huge embarrassment to Nixon. Uh, and he used these plumbers and others to, he used the FBI to wiretap various journalists to find out where they were getting information. And he used the plumbers to investigate uh, the source of leaks as well. One of the leaks that most concerned Nixon was the revelation that uh, when Daniel Ellsberg, who unfortunately died very recently, a true hero. Right, right. Uh, the, the Pentagon Papers. Right. When he was working at the Rand Corporation on the Pentagon's secret history of the Vietnam War, uh, he leaked those, as many will remember, to the New York Times and Washington Post, creating a huge scandal. Both papers ran excerpts. The case, the attempts to suppress publication went to the Supreme Court, which ruled against the administration. It was a landmark case, truly you know, an awesome time in our history. One of the things that worried Nixon the most when he first heard that there was this huge secret history of the war, and this is not widely appreciated, most of this history ended with the end of the Johnson administration. So why should Nixon care? Well, it's quite probable that he cared, not knowing what was in this history, because he had secretly, during the Johnson administration, engaged in truly treasonous, and I use that word in the full meaning of the word, backdoor uh, dealings with the president of South Vietnam to get him to refuse to negotiate uh, 
basically to oppose peace efforts by the Johnson administration. Nixon's fear was if these peace efforts paid off, that would be a huge political boon to Johnson's uh, would-be successor, Hubert Humphrey, vice president under Johnson, and that Nixon would lose the 1968 election. So Nixon used a back-channel uh, agent to contact the South Vietnamese government and say, we want you to reject these peace efforts. And if I'm elected president, I'll give you carte blanche to carry on the war. Nixon, uh, through top secret, I'm sorry, President Johnson, through top secret intelligence, caught wind of what Nixon was doing. And he called it treasonous as well, but he decided that the consequences for American politics of revealing what Nixon had done would be cataclysmic. And he basically decided not to blow the, pub the whistle publicly on Nixon uh, and filed it away you know, under top secret papers, I think at the Johnson Library and so on. But this was a huge, huge secret that would have blown Nixon out of the water. And, and there was fear then on the, the Nixon side of things that this could come out because Gigantic of Ellsberg fear. and the Pentagon Papers. So then, for people that don't know, a lot of people forget this, the Nixon plumbers ended up breaking into the Los Angeles office of Ellsberg's psychiatrist, Dr. Lewis Fielding. So, And this is the key event. This predates Watergate. And this is why some of these people, including E. Howard Hunt, were hired, was precisely to chase down the Pentagon Papers leak and to do something about it. They were looking to for information that would discredit, essentially blackmail Ellsberg to see, if, you know, by rifling through his psychiatrist records, they could come up with highly embarrassing information to discredit him. This operation was authorized by the president, unlike Watergate, thus it could be traced directly back to him. It was highly illegal. Uh, and Nixon, therefore, had every reason to be terrified that too much investigation of his plumbers uh, could blow up in his face. That's why Nixon was so desperate to pay hush money to the Watergate burglars, because he didn't want them spilling the beans about the Ellsberg operation. So let's just recap here. We have some blackmail operations you know, we have history going back to 1956 when you have the Hughes payoffs to Nixon. You have blackmail operations starting at the highest levels of the government after 1960-61 with the CIA mafia assassination plots. Nixon, by the way, had been vice president overseeing some of this political uh, stuff in 1960. So <laughs> he had a kind of indirect hand in it as well. Um, but when Nixon becomes president, he's desperately worried about blackmail, first over his treasonous efforts to undermine peace efforts in Vietnam. Secondly, fearful of exposure of the plumbers' illegal burglaries, which would be a criminal act that would land at his doorstep. And then thirdly, terrified of exposure of the cash payoffs he took from Howard Hughes. So he's facing a whole series of interlocking um, 
crimes that he was desperate to cover up. And it was kind of this domino effect. It's a maelstrom in a way. It is, but he's, you know, hiring the plumbers to put out his fear of the Vietnam stuff. Then he has to worry about um, the Howard Hughes stuff. Then when his plumbers are captured at Watergate, he then has to fear that they might spill the beans on the Ellsberg break-in. So he has to pay them hush money and get the CIA to try to quash the investigation. And those two obstruction of, of justice efforts bring him down. Well, this is, this is like a story that makes you realize that the public story of Watergate is the proverbial tip of the iceberg. We were given very, very little of this in 1973. Um, and, uh, uh, but, you know, it's all starting to come together with subsequent scholarship and my own researches. It's really interesting, too, because uh, you have, you know, uh, Chip Magruder and these other people associated with Nixon really pointing G. Gordon Liddy in the direction of the office of Larry O'Brien and also a character. I don't know if we mentioned it, but Hank Greenspun, who's a publisher. I believe he ran the Las Vegas was it the Las Vegas Sun or? Yes, Las Vegas Sun. Yeah, so they're directing Liddy towards these sort of figures and like go to their office, do this. Uh, and it's really interesting because they must have, the Nixon administration must have been really, really worried about a lot of this stuff because you, you look at someone like G. Gordon Liddy, I mean, he's an eccentric character. And I mean, he presents them with like, a whole plan. I forget what it was codenamed, but, you know, uh, just a whole really ridiculous plot of how he was going to pull off these, you know, burglaries and whatnot. And it's like the fact that even people close to Nixon thought, wow, this is a little bit crazy and even laughed at it. The fact that they would still sort of go with Liddy, you know, and have him try to do something, uh, some kind of plot, even if it was like lesser than what Gordon Liddy originally intended, it's it's pretty telling, you know, that they would uh, right. employ this rather, I would say, renegade character. Right. For listeners who've sort of forgotten or didn't know uh, some of this stuff, Liddy was an ex-FBI uh, agent hired to do to with Hunt, E. Howard Hunt, to sort of head up this plumber squad. And he was a uh, kind of infamous for his macho, like ultra macho, daring do. Uh, and so, yes, he came up when he was tasked with, a, you know, starting a political intelligence operation. He came up with a like a million dollar plan to do break ins, buggings, muggings, hire prostitutes to implicate Democratic officials on and on and on. And bad as the Nixon people were, they were pretty appalled by this and didn't take well, it seriously. And they also, I think they probably thought it was a bit kooky. It was like almost yeah, too over the kooky. top. It was kooky. They almost joked about it. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, in the end, they didn't fire him. And he, in fact, he was tasked with Hunt with going into the Democratic National Committee. And I think it's very telling. Most people who've written about Watergate don't really explain why the plumbers were so seriously interested in breaking into this obscure Las Vegas publisher's safe. And right, Greenspun. Yeah, Greenspun. Yeah. And uh, the office of the Democratic National Committee, which, as I mentioned earlier, had no important campaign intelligence. 
these are two mysteries uh, that traditional accounts never solve. And my explanation fits beautifully. I've already mentioned why the head of the Democratic National Committee was of such interest, Larry O'Brien, because he potentially knew all of Mayhew's secrets about Hughes's political operations. He could be a deadly weapon used by Mayhew to blow the Hughes operation out of the water and bring down Nixon as well. well what about Hank Greenspun? Well, Hank Greenspun was one of Mayhew's closest friends. And in fact, Mayhew had deposited copies of many of these incriminating Hughes memos in Greenspun's safe uh, at the Las Vegas Sun. Now, it turns out that Jack Anderson, as I've mentioned over and over again as being Nixon's journalistic nemesis, had been a friend of Hank Greenspun since the early 1950s, was in fact an investor in Greenspun's newspaper. The two were like as close colleagues as they could be. Greenspun, moreover, had been involved in all sorts of casino deals with this lawyer, Edward P. Morgan. And I won't even go into the mobsters and <laughs> it's just mind boggling, but uh, Greenspun represented the very same group of deadly enemies who Nixon had to worry about. Mayhew, O'Brien, Jack Anderson, uh, and on and on. He had the memo, the incriminating memos that could blow Nixon out of the water. That's why the plumbers went, considered very seriously breaking into his offices and then did break into the Democratic National Committee. And if you see that joint operation, it makes total sense about Howard Hughes being the center uh, of their concern. Before closing out, uh, I do want to preview a, another piece you have coming out uh, that's not going to be in Lobster, but it's about uh, U.S. Cold War policy in the Italian far right. But before we get to that, if you could, uh, do you see any parallels between Watergate and uh you know, the events of uh, the present, you know, I know, I, 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 I know a lot of people have compared Trump and Watergate. So I don't know if you want to go there or how do you how do you just think that uh, Watergate is relevant today? And why should we uh, be examining this case, this story of Howard Hughes and his connection to Watergate? Well, I think it's a great uh, example. First of all, I think uh, Watergate took place in a more innocent age when we were shocked by this kind of scandal, uh, shocked by you know, the potential role of money in politics. I, I was going to say, I think sometimes people forget just how much Watergate really shook the nation, right? I mean, Irving right. Crystal called it the nightmare of Watergate, you know, right? It I mean, was it was. Huge. I mean, LBJ too. Not LBJ. uh Gerald Ford is the long national nightmare line, but you know it it really was something that shook faith in the institutions. You know, tens of millions of Americans stopped what they were doing and watched the evening news with Walter Cronkite, or watched the Senate Watergate hearings. It captivated the country in a way very few events have before or since, um, and that's because, as I said, it was a more innocent age. It was truly shocking to people. We didn't just assume the worst about all of our institutions. Uh, it led to uh, 
lionization of the U.S. media for having, you know, allegedly helped expose these high crimes and misdemeanors. So there was a tremendous number of people, somewhat myself included, went into journalism as a result of the sense of uh, idealism created by the Washington Post journalist Woodward and Bernstein. Um, but I think it gave us a foretaste for the kinds of incredibly seamy dealings that uh, we later saw under Trump, who had organized crime connections, as did Nixon, uh, taking money from all sorts of uh, interest groups, um, you know, the blackmail stuff going on and on. The big difference, I think, is that uh, Trump learned a lesson from his friend and former mob attorney, Roy Cohn, never to apologize, never to feel shame, just gut it out. And he basically, uh, you know, brought American politics to a totally new level where there was no way you could shame anyone. And as, as Trump said, and I think he's been borne out, he could like shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and his supporters would keep supporting him. And, you know, after multiple indictments, that seems to be borne out. Um, the other difference was that while it's sometimes forgotten how extremely partisan Republicans were on Nixon's behalf during Watergate, eventually, when the so-called smoking gun evidence came out, uh, enough Republicans did desert him that he realized he wouldn't have the votes in the Senate to uh, avoid conviction, and he resigned. That's different today. Today, you have incredible numbers of Republicans who've acknowledged privately that Trump is a criminal and that uh, the January 6th insurrection was a horrible threat to American democracy. And they have all, you know, the, a few resigned, uh, you know, are no longer in government. Virtually every Republican still in government has capitulated to Trump and to accepting the kinds of uh, anti-democratic values that he espouses and exemplifies. So that's an important and tragic change from the early 70s to today, the evolution of the Republican Party uh, into a totally anti-democratic force, small d democratic force. Uh, but Watergate is sort of an important step along the way. Also, I, I wanted to ask, this is a brief detour, but when it comes to Nixon and the mob, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the books, um, The Mafia's President, Nixon and the Mob by Don Folsom, uh, and I think there's also Nixon's Darkest Secret. But it's interesting, I don't hear much about Nixon and the mob spoken about. You know, I don't I don't hear much about, you know, uh, Santo Traficante and his connections to these things, but uh you know, when you usually hear about the mob in politics, it's usually in reference to, oh, yeah, that that Jimmy Hoffa stuff, the unions. Uh, do you think we have too limited of a view uh, of the mob and its relation to politics in that regard? Well, certainly, yes. And of course, that was the entire point of my book, Dark Quadrant, whose uh, subtitle was Organized Crime, Big Business and the Corruption of American Politics from Truman to Trump. Um I do discuss uh, some of Nixon's ties to organized crime in the book. And I also 
uh, had a very long chapter on Nixon's early ties to the mob that I published as an addendum on the publisher's website. It's available for download uh, if you go to the publisher's page for my book. It was just too, the book was getting too long. So uh, we dropped it and put it on the page. It's free of charge uh, to download. But, uh, you know, I looked very, very in depth at Nixon's ties to organized crime, which were very noticeably not investigated officially during Watergate. Now that's, remember I started off talking about parapolitics and about that realm of politics that are, go without, you know, undiscussed because they're too sensitive. Nixon's ties to organized crime, I think really exemplified that because it's one thing to say he had, you know, took illegal campaign contributions or something. That sort of was in the realm of understandable, normal politics. It was bad. To have deep connections with organized crime would call into question much more seriously the legitimacy of the American system. Like, how the heck does that happen? You know, it isn't the FBI, you know, cracking down on organized crime. What, what gives here? So, um, you know, one of the things that intrigued me at the time was the uh, chief counsel and thus lead investigator for the Senate Watergate Committee, which was probably the single most influential public investigating organization. His name was Sam Dash. He happened to be a very prominent mafia lawyer. <laughs> he represented uh, one of the heads of the St. Louis mob, Morris Schenker. Uh, so, you know, draw your own conclusion. Similarly, the uh, one of the heads of the uh, House Judiciary Committee, which investigated the impeachment investigation, Albert Jenner, was uh, attorney to Alan Dorfman. You cut out there for the a second. You, you uh, said Albert Jenner and then it cut out. Could you... Albert Jenner was counsel to Alan Dorfman, one of the most sinister and powerful Chicago mobsters and Teamsters Union bosses. Um, so my goodness, perhaps it's coincidence, but you know, the two most influential lawyers, uh, counsel on the investigative side, both represented mobsters and for whatever reason, didn't decide to investigate Nixon's ties to organized crime. So uh, the FBI had a long history of basically ducking investigations of organized crime, as I talk about in the book. So they had a very you know straight and narrow investigation uh, that didn't go far afield. And I did, uh, I was the first person to get declassification of some of the Watergate special counsel uh, investigation records and uh, through the Freedom of Information Act, which took some years actually. But um, they began looking at some of these allegations, including allegations that Nixon had put money into Swiss bank accounts and so on. And they basically didn't have the staff or time to, to pursue this stuff. So sadly, you know, it uh, the records are not a great help either. Although I, you know, did find some great nuggets, but um, uh, I was also able to largely disprove some of the allegations about Nixon and organized crime, about huge payoffs that he had allegedly 
uh, gotten, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1972 from major mobsters. And I concluded that the source on that was very unreliable. So, uh, you know, unlike one or two of those other sources you mentioned, I try not to throw the entire kitchen sink in. I try to look only at what's verified and verifiable. You know, I think credibility is really important here. No, I definitely agree. Um, just in, in closing here, I know you have an upcoming piece on uh, U.S. Cold War policy and the Italian far right. I, I know we can't get into the nitty gritty details and all of that, but maybe you could just give my listeners an, an idea of where that article will be taking things. Okay. Uh, and we can, you know, if, if there's interest, we can come back to this. That article actually was published in January already uh, in the journal. My, of, my apologies. I thought it was still coming in. No, Never that's mind. okay. Uh, in the Journal of Cold War Studies, which is a major historical journal. And it also deals with the Nixon administration. And in some ways, it's a reminder that uh, while nothing rocked the American political system more than Watergate, at least until the January 6th insurrection, Nixon's crimes, you could argue, were far worse in other ways. For example, uh, you know, his, his almost genocidal bombing and war in Southeast Asia, uh, his, uh, his, his uh, moves to promote a military uh, coup in Chile in 1973, uh, and things like that in foreign policy, which were just, you know, caused untold numbers of deaths and destruction, which, you know, we should look at on a global basis, really put Watergate to shame. So this article looks at a Nixon era, uh, important piece of history that's been entirely neglected by American historians of the Nixon era, almost completely unknown. And that is at the same time he was promoting a military coup in Chile against a democratically elected socialist president starting in 1970. Nixon's uh, people began holding talks with far-right neo-fascist uh, activists in Italy to promote a military coup against a democratic NATO ally. I mean, in my view, this is, you know, this is... Uh, sort of unfairly ethnocentric, perhaps, but an even bigger deal than Chile. Chile was considered part of the third world, and thus kind of traditional fair game for uh, brutal paramilitary and CIA interventions, you know, that had happened all the time from Iran to Indonesia to, uh, and now to Chile. But Italy was in the heart of the Western alliance, which is supposed to be democratic. That's what NATO was founded to preserve, was democracy in Western Europe. And the thought that the Nixon administration might be in cahoots with neo-fascist plotters of a military coup is pretty mind-boggling and has never been basically written about by mainstream uh, English language historians. There have been some accounts in Italy, uh, and uh, I mind those plus documents from declassified from the National Security Council, the Nixon Library, and CIA records. 
to show that the Nixon administration very seriously held talks with these neo-fascists, one of whom was a veteran of SS campaigns in World War II, uh, and uh, decided basically to hold off on a military coup until they could try bribing the Italian electorate into uh, denying the communists a victory. And they spent millions and millions of dollars in Italy, which would be the equivalent probably today of hundreds of millions of dollars in the US on a per capita basis adjusted for inflation uh, to buy the Italian elections. And they swung enough votes to the Italian fascist party to deny the communists uh, a chance to enter the government. And that put off the need, in their view, for a military coup. Uh, and the whole thing, I think, is pretty mind-boggling. And uh, That's incredible. So, uh, and what's also interesting is the way in which the Nixon administration repeatedly, very consciously saw connections between Italy and Chile. They basically talked about you know, the potential need for a Chileans-type solution in Italy. And in both places, they were afraid that a democratic election of socialist or communist forces would legitimize anti-US uh, politicians uh, who had been demonized as just you know, totalitarian puppets of the Soviet Union. But if they could actually win elections, that would undercut our foreign policy. And it's very scary to uh, to contemplate how close Italy came to a neo-fascist coup. Well, I, I think we'll leave it at that. I think people will be very interested in that article um, on Cold War studies because some familiar names pop up in it. I know uh, uh, Michelle Sindona comes up and, yep. and Lee Shiljali. Uh, right. You know, it's interesting how the same names pop up over and over again. I, I kind of get why people become paranoid or conspiratorial about these things. But I think you're right, too, uh, to your point about we have to sort of remain credible and very careful in our research. And I think you're doing great with that. So I want to thank you, Jonathan Marshall, uh, for another enlightening conversation on Parallax Views with you. And uh, how can my listeners keep up uh, with your work? Great. Well, uh, first, they can... Uh check out uh, Lobster's website. <clears throat> Lobster, you, you referenced very early on. It's a British newsletter. Shout uh, out to uh, Robin Ramsey. I'm a big fan. Robin Ramsey. And uh, you can search on it for my articles, uh, but certainly read others as well. But you'll find a number of articles, including some much older ones uh, that you may find of interest. So by all, I think it's lobster.com. Uh, it's www.lobster-magazine.co.uk. So lobster-magazine.co.uk. A great source of interesting, you know, for the most part, very well uh, documented information. They can also go to the website academia.edu edu for education, academia.edu. Look up my name, Jonathan Marshall, and they'll find a full profile and maybe something like 20 of my uh, articles, uh, scholar, more scholarly articles, including uh, 
many of the ones we've talked about today, and they can download them there. Or in the case of the one on the uh, plots in Italy, that one, as because it's an academic publication, uh, I can't make freely available. But if a person through academia.edu asks me for a copy, I can individually send them one for free. So um, if you're especially interested, I can be sure to put one in your possession. And thank you again, Jonathan Marshall, for coming on Parallax Views. Great. Thank you. And uh, thanks for your interest. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jonathan Marshall on Watergate, Richard Nixon, and Howard Hughes. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerlax View to Parallax View with Jerlax View. The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit it. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm. I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.